The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Bonjour, Andrew. Oh, bonjour, Daniel. Ça va? Oui, ça va bien, merci. Uh, Parlez-vous français? Pas du tout. Moi aussi, uh, j'habite à Bristol, <laughs> dans, dans le sud-ouest de l'Angleterre. Uh, oui, uh, mais aussi uh, habite uh, pas dans Bristol, mais... Uh, I'm completely stuck now. Um, even, uh, what's, what's, what's Wales in French? Oh, I don't know. Oh, that's terrible. I've never known that. Oh, that I, the poor. thing is, I, I have known that. That's terrible to forget what your, where you live is in French. <laughs> anyway, shall we explain? Go on then. <laughs> so we're... Allez. Oui, oui. With this episode of the podcast, we're talking about French cars. Because there's, I mean, France has built over the years... Some of the most beautiful, some of the quirkiest, but also some of the best performance cars there have been. And some of the most terrible cars, too. Well, okay. I wasn't going to get onto that right away, but yes, you're right. <laughs> and it, it has been pointed out, Andrew, that we both own French cars, but we're not going to talk about those. You know, ha 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 ha. Steady on. The only undertaking which I'm aware is that you have promised, guaranteed, that you will not mention your car once during the duration of this podcast. I think I have guaranteed that I won't mention the phrase from the get-go anyway. This is in response to somebody who wrote into us saying, see if you can do a podcast without Dan mentioning his car or you saying from the get-go. So we're going to both try and do that. I've not, not made any undertakings about mention, not mentioning my French car at all. In fact, I intend to talk about little else. I actually, I, I don't know which car you're talking about. Well, we'll be getting to it. We will be getting to it. Uh, oh, and, and the, uh, you mean the aluminium Renault? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Oh, well, well, your aluminium Renault. Yes. Oh, have you come up with 10 different ways of saying Alpine A110 <laughs> without saying Alpine A110? Yeah, the other one is the alloy-bodied Renault. The alloy-bodied Renault. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, the other thing I should say is, uh, and I should have gone back and dug out the name of the person who suggested this podcast, because I uh, loved that you all think this is a completely original idea of Dan's and mine. It's not. Um, as it's happening quite a lot at the moment, and we love it, uh, you guys are getting in touch with us and saying, why don't you do a podcast and such and such? And somebody said, there are so many fantastic um, French cars out there and such great French history to them. Why don't you do a... And you both own French cars, um, although Dan's mm. not talking about his. Um, why no, don't no. you do a podcast about them? Which, which is really why we're um, doing this today. So I um, hope you enjoy it. Yeah, right. So if we look back to sort of the start of the previous century, France was right there, wasn't it? Right at the, the forefront of the automotive industry, um, perhaps even more so than the UK and more so than Germany, maybe? Yeah, I mean, in those very early days. Um, yeah. And, and also, you know, if you think of the, you know, back right back to the, you know, the dawn of racing, um, you know, the very, very first, those crazy, crazy lethal road races, I mean, almost all of them, um, either took place in France or went through France or started or ended in France. I mean, France was, France was kind of where it was at. And, and, and we're not talking, you know, sort of 1920s, 1930s here. Now we're talking turn of the century, you know, 1900s, um, when those massive, um, terrifying things, um, on bicycle wheels used to go thundering down dusty avenues at 100 miles an hour, often throwing their occupants out when wheels collapsed on corners and, you know, and, and lots of people died, didn't they? Um, but yes, no, absolutely, France was, and, and, and also, you know, let's not forget, um, you know, for instance, there was racing at Le Mans long before there was a 24-hour race there. Um, 
you know um so yeah francis absolutely you know from the i so nearly said from the get-go i didn't say from the get-go <laughs> um from the very start from the dawn of motor racing um yeah and french uh cars and france have been absolutely integral to the whole thing Good. That, well, that, that's a good place to start at the beginning. Um, uh, what I want to talk about a little bit now is the sort of interwar years around the 1930s, because if you look at them now, some of the French cars that were being produced during that time are sensational to look at, among the most beautiful cars there have ever been. But if you, if, if, if you look now, um, if you can, if you're not driving or if you've got your phone with you or something, just Google... Talbot Largo T150 from the 1930s. And or Delahaye or Delage. Yes. yes. So with own all this too? Yeah. yeah. They, they are just sensational to look at. They're spectacular. Um, and, of course, that's before you mentioned Bugatti. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, they're the governors, weren't they? I mean, you, the funny thing is, is that sitting here, you know, a hundred years hence, you don't really sort of, you know, when you think of, you know, the great automotive nations. You think of France and you think, oh yeah, they made some interesting quirky cars, but you don't think of it in the terms that you think of, you know, Italy and America and Germany and dare I even say um, Britain as, you know, as great automotive. But of course they were and they were doing it, you know, probably before most of the rest of um, those countries and, and, and doing it better. And you're right, those those 30, 30s cars are absolutely I have a particular thing about Delahaye's. They are so, I mean, quite a lot of it depends on which, which coach builder put the, the bodies on them, but they were so low and so sleek. And yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, given how old these cars are, they, they, they looked unbelievably modern too. Yeah, the, the T-150 that I mentioned, the Talbot Largo, it, it yeah. still looks futuristic almost 100 years on. Amazing, really. Um, I think while we're doing this, we should also mention some of the... The French manufacturers that are perhaps not around at the moment or um, are slightly less familiar to a sort of modern day audience. Um, what about the Venturi Atlantique from the 90s? Oh, the MVS Venturi. Um, yeah. Um, did, you, did, you, did you ever drive one of those? Yeah, I did. It was good. I mean, it was, uh, it was kind of a rival for... Um, no, I can say Alpine, can't I? Um, you know the sort of the A six, the, the A six ten, um, and, and and probably slightly in its dreams, um, the uh, the nine eleven as well. Um, but you know they were they were actually um, I'm trying to remember them, but no, they they they, they were solid cars. I mean they they made some pretty good racing cars as well, um, and and very credible. But you know as I'm sure we will touch on, um, you know the one one problem that certainly you know, in recent years, French cars have always had is people don't want to spend a lot of money on them. Um, and people didn't want to spend 911 money on an MVS Venturi any more than they wanted to spend 911 money on, a, on, a, on an A610. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these cars, you know, you, you think of them, and, I, 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 and because, you know, so much water has flown under the bridge um, since then, I kind of think back and, and, and kind of have to try to visualise the car and try to remember what it is. It's not one of those cars that immediately pops back into my mind. So, I, I mean, clearly it wasn't a, a world beater or anything close, but it, it certainly wasn't a shed either. Uh, it was certainly entirely credible. And um, yeah, I can remember thinking nice things about it. Quick, handled well, did, didn't you? Got, got the basics right. Very pretty car, um, a, a, mid, a mid-engine car. And uh, there's a quote here that I've dug out from Performance Car, 
magazine in the day, comparing it to a Lotus Esprit. Um, and Performance Car said, it's, the Atlantic is a more relaxing car to drive. Its tidier dimensions make it easier to place. It rides more smoothly. That's surprising. Generates far less road noise and has a much slicker gear change. It's better built too. Um, so that's quite interesting, isn't it, compared to a Lotus Esprit? But so did it, 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 it win the comparison? But it didn't win the comparison. No. I actually can't see here, but I'm going to go out on a limb and guess no, that it That didn't. sounds to me like a list of things that a journalist is putting in for balance purposes before he goes and awards the contest to the other car. But, um, but, but as you can see, um, you know, absolutely credible. Um, you know, perfectly good effort. Um, I just want to cover off a couple of slightly more obscure French cars. Um, and I, I, I'm praying that you've driven a Matra Bagheera. I haven't. I'm really sorry. That's um, a shame. Do you I know anything about uh, them? Uh, well, I, yes. Well, well, there's only one thing you need to know about Bagheeras. They had three seats across the front. That was the thing about Bagheeras. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm it's afraid extraordinary that, before... that no one's done it since. <laughs> well, apart from Gordon Murray, um, that sort of yeah. Uh, yeah, um, I know. No, I mean, I'm not. I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that old. I think when was the Bagheera around? Early eighties. Well, 70s and early 80s, yeah. Yeah, okay, so no, uh, I I think I should take a bit of offence here. Now, I I, I started this business in in, in 88, so no, I haven't driven a Bagheera. No, Um, but you've told us plenty of stories of driving pre-war Bentleys and so on. I know you drive lots of old cars. Oh, okay, fair enough, okay, fair enough. No, you're absolutely right. I've not, do you know, I don't don't think, in fact, I'm going to say this now, I don't think I've ever driven a Matra, be it... A Formula One car, a Le Mans winning sports car, a Bagheera, a Murina, a Rancho, or anything else called itself a Matra. I've never driven a Matra. Um, have you driven a Renault Espace? Oh, that was done by Matra, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I have driven, <laughs> driven a car built by Matra. <laughs> okay. It doesn't really count, though. Um, have you driven a Fassel Vega? No, I'd love to, though. I mean, they're terrible by all accounts. There, but particularly, was it the convertible ones? Because they got they basically don't have any structural rigidity um, at all. But oh my goodness! I mean, they were, I mean, they were so gorgeous and they were so exotic and so glamorous. I mean, it was it was the kind of Rolls Royce for really really cool people, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> and no, I would absolutely love to. I mean, I, I, I used to know someone who had one, um, and I was, um, I was always hoping that I would be sort of summoned, but I never even went in it. Um, no, and I, I've never been in any other Vassal Vega, but I have admired them from afar. I suspect they'd be deeply disappointed to drive, but it's, it's, they're not the sorts of cars that you want to go harrying around the place in, does it? They're just cars that, they're wafters. It's all about soaking up the experience and just enjoying the fact you're in a Fassel Vega, I mean, you know, what's not to like about that? So, no, I haven't, but I would absolutely love to. If anybody listening to this has a Fassel Vega, um, yeah, love to. Okay, so there, we've covered off some of the more obscure stuff that we absolutely had to touch on. Um, we can get stuck into it a bit now, though. Um, it was, so what, what springs to mind when we think of French cars? Is there such a thing as a French national identity, or is it just sort of, the lazy stereotyping that people like us resort to when we're up against the deadline. Do you mean it just in terms of a sort of national, rather than a particular car, a sort of you know, sort of trademark characteristics? I mean, I mean, I mean, it's 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 been used by hundreds of people, including me, already during the course of this podcast. But quirky is the word, isn't it? They're just they are. I mean, what I've always loved about them is um, they've never been 
afraid to be different. They've never been afraid to try different things, put them out there, and and some utterly insane cars have have, have resulted. You know, and some of them, you know, not that long ago. I give you the Avon team, um, but you know, they've always just been gutsy. They've had a go, um, and sometimes you know that courage pays off and when it pays off i'm going to mention the 2cv now uh, but also you know things like you know the renault 4 as well um you know you get cars which become i can use the word icons um and they last for decades uh and become um you know sort of emblematic and you know i just love that courage i mean that they always have been i'm not so sure it's the case these days um but I'm sure we'll get on to that. Um, but they've always just been, you know, the French car, I mean, the big three, Peugeot, Citroën and Renault, they've always just been the guys who've just gone, okay, well, we'll have a, we'll have a bash at this. And they, no one's ever done it before. And certainly no one's ever done it that way before, but it looks good to us, so we'll have a go. And I, and I just love that. There's, there's not enough of that around. I don't think there's ever been enough of that around, frankly. Um, and so, yeah, but, but also... You know, is it fair to say the bigger the French car, the less likely it is to have been successful, possibly? Yeah, well, we'll come on to that in a moment. But I just want to see, you've touched on it yourself. But I think um, when we talk about everyday and affordable French cars, perhaps less so now, but certainly over the years, what the French manufacturers have managed to do is make small cars, small, affordable family and city cars, the cars that quite often people like us will just dismiss offhand and think of as boring little boxes that have no charm whatsoever. But the French industry somehow seems to have made so many of those cars charming and interesting and just cool somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's a good good legacy, isn't it, for the the French It it, it is, and, and, and hats off to them. Because, you know, if you think about those sorts of cars, I mean, the one thing that all those really small affordable cars um have in common the one enormous asset they have or should have is that they're light um and you know if you go to you know gordon murray or any other world-class engineer and ask him for one attribute for a car to have be it um you know a, a mclaren f1 or a little city car uh, you know they'll t- they'll tell you job one is be light so th- so they've got the the numero uno attribute and then they just had fun with it didn't they they just used that to make these cars um nimble and agile and chuckable and and fun um and the other thing about those cars is um they all handled in a certain sort of way didn't they i mean and 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 it, it applies you know pretty much across the board with those particularly with those so you know those great hatchbacks that we you know that that, that we remember um, so well, be it a you know a Citroen Visa um, or a Renault Four or you know um, they they're all quite soft, aren't they? They don't mind. They're not afraid to roll around a bit, um, and which also means that they ride beautifully and 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 it provides them with a character of their own, you know, because nobody else did it that way. Um, so they have their own identity. They 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 have their own charm as a result. Um, yeah, I mean all those things. They're, they're just they're just fantastic. Do you think it still applies to small French cars that, that to this day, or has something been lost? Uh, of course, something's been lost, but something's been lost from all cars. But I think yeah. small it's a, cars. It's a more homogenous it. world now, isn't it? It is a more homogenous world, and you know, and also, you know, going back to what I was talking about about um, you know cars being light, 
um, in percentage terms, the cars that have suffered most for all the legislation um, and all the additional content they have to carry and all the um, crash structure of the car. It's, it's obviously proportionally the small cars that have, you know, the, the, whose race, whose weight has proportionally increased the most. And they're not like that um, anymore. Um, and, and it's a shame. I mean, some are better than others, but no, I mean, if you think of, uh, you know, a Renault Clio or, you know, a Peugeot 208 um, or, a, you know, a, the equivalent of Citroën, what would that be, a C3 or something like that? I mean, these are, I don't think, you know, um, anybody's going to be wistfully, um, you know, remembering those cars 50 years from now in the way that we think back to, you know, Renault 5s and, you know, Peugeot 205s and Citroen Visas and you know and and, and that lot. Um, I, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe these cars will be, um, you know, rightly renowned in decades to come. But I just don't see it. I'm afraid because they they have lost that character. They've lost that charm. They've lost that identity. I detect a little bit of an effort. Um, I sit on a thing called. I know you know this, Dan, but for anybody uh, out there, I sit on this thing called the Car of the Year, Jerry. Um, which, and the only reason I mention it is it means I just, but, but you know, in, in addition to all the fast exotic stuff we tend to talk about on this podcast, I also have to drive um, pretty much everything else that comes out. So I'm a bit more abreast of, um, you know, think, you know, small family hatchbacks and stuff than otherwise I might be. And I do detect um, the French manufacturers are all making more of an effort now than they have done. I mean, I think they went through a terrible patch. Um, you know, particularly, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and, they got, you know, they what, got to a point, didn't they, where it seemed as though the product didn't matter anymore. Yeah, It was all absolutely. about how it was marketed and finance packages and all that stuff. It, it, exactly right. And I, think, and, I, and, I, and I think that that is starting to turn around now. I've driven a few... Um, quite, I mean, I'd say Peugeot is, is, is doing better now than it has. And I think Renault's going in, in the right direction and, and Citroën too. But I mean, let's be honest, we're still, you know, we are still a way away from the glory days. Um, but, you know, hopefully, you know, I don't think they'll ever get back there. And that's not their fault. I think the world is a different place. People's requirements are different and you can't build cars um, out of biscuit tins anymore. Um, you know, um, so, you know, they're, they're never going to be like they were. But they're certainly, I mean, you know, all you can hope for anyone making anything is to not do what you were saying, which is focus on the marketing and the finance, but focus on the product. Um, and, and I do get the impression that the French manufacturers are starting to focus on their products in a way that they haven't done for, for far, far too long. Mm, let's hope so. Um, you mentioned uh, a different type of French car earlier. Let's get stuck into it now because there's nothing more sort of baffling or um, actually quite amusing than a big French car, a big sort of saloon car or whatever, because, well, they come along, you know, it's kind of few and far between, um, and they just don't work, do they? Not very no. often anyway. No, they don't. Um, no, and, and, and I can, you know, I can remember they, the, 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 yeah, something like, uh, I'm just trying to think, you know, a Peugeot 605 or something like that, or some enormous Citroen XM or, you know, and, you know, they'd all look very interesting on paper and they come along and, you know, they'd have certain attributes, but they were never built to the standard that you would expect for a car costing that much. Um, you know, I can remember we had a, 
<laughs> we had a Citroen XM long-term test car on, on Autocar. I don't think we ever ran a more unreliable car. I mean, you know, every time you went out of it, something fell off it. Um, and, you know, and people, you know, when their alternatives are, you know, E-Class Mercedes and Fire Series BMWs and that sort of, they, they just won't put up with it. And so they don't. Um, and so, so the, so the, so forgive me, there, there, there are two things. So firstly, the cars just weren't up to snuff. Um, sometimes you drive them and you think, well, this is okay, but you know, just the, the experience of living them with them just wasn't good enough. Um, but the other thing is, and this is not their fault at all, is, you know, we're all bad snobs, aren't we? Yeah. Um, and it's got to be the better part of it or a big part of it at least. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, you know, you have to explain to your neighbor with his five series BMW why you bought a Citroen. Um, and you know, I don't mean that in any kind of pejorative sense at all. I'm just, you know, it's just the way it is and it's just the way people think. Um, and they, you know, they don't want to be thought of as people, you know, who, who drive a Citroen, you know, when they could be driving, you know, a BMW and it's, you know, it's, it's sad and it is, it is snobbery, but it is absolutely the way that it is. Yeah. It's as though the French car manufacturers are sort of happier. They're at their best building smaller more affordable cars yeah Um, they are and it wasn't always that way and i'm reading your notes here andrew and it it seems as though you think that it really got going um it was citroen who sort of gave gave that real impetus just after the war um with the traction event yeah um i mean that was a fantastic car um you know pioneering front wheel drive car amazing looking thing um i'm i'm sure uh, everybody knows what i'm talking about um it's the car that inspector Maigret used to drive if you ever saw any of those old films or um you know just lovely sleek um front wheel drive car hence traction avant uh, and obviously from there you know going into the ds um about which you know people will you know wax lyrical for the for, for, for the rest of eternity it's interesting isn't it because you know the ds was a very large car um, and supremely successful. Um, so, you know, something's changed, hasn't it? Um, either the game moved beyond them or attitudes changed. Um, and, but, you know, I, I was um, somewhere a few weeks ago doing something um, and Harris turned up in a DS estate um, and we all piled off to the pub in it. And, you know, I hadn't driven a DS in years and years and years. And in fact, the only one I'd driven prior to that wasn't a very good one. Um, and this car, it was just, it was just so utterly charming. We were all just grinning like loons in this mad looking thing, which was, you know, it was bonkers. And yet it was still beautiful. It had so much space in it. It was so ridiculously comfortable. Um, and it was so, it's that word again, quirky. It was so, it was just so strange in the way that it operated. And it, it, it just interested me. It just made you think, well, why did they choose to do that? Well, why did they choose, for instance, to make the brake pedal a button? You know, because it is, it's, it's just a button on the floor. It's a pressure pad. It's not a pedal at all. Um, and, you know, and, and I'm sure um, we, or particularly you, are going to get into the crazy suspension systems that they used to come up with um, for those sorts of cars but it goes back to what i was talking about earlier i just love the fact that they just thought this is completely and utterly different um and therefore we're going to do it um and and 
goodness, it worked well, didn't it? Um, so, yes, I mean, you mentioned the weird suspension and I've been reading up about it because it's it's so interesting. Hydro pneumatic suspension. Um, I think it's on the traction avant that it was first introduced, although maybe only on the rear axle. And it was on the DS that it was first used all round. Um, so, OK, sim- to try and explain it in layman's terms, not least because that's the only terms I'll be able to understand it. it rather than having springs and dampers, uh, there's a sphere which is filled with trapped gas uh, and an and a, a hydraulic fluid. Um, the point being that you can compress a gas, but you can't compress the hydraulic fluid. So effectively, the gas is the spring, which absorbs the impact, and the fluid is the damper, um, which is just, when it's sort of phrased like that, it just seems... There, there seems to be genius in how simple that is just you know using a gas as the damper and a uh, and uh, uh, sorry a gas as the spring and the fluid, the fluid is, the, is, the damper. is the damper it's just brilliant isn't it it seems um, absolutely inspired so i mean so 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 why did it ultimate why was it ultimately not adopted by everyone i don't know yeah and um as citroen you know they they use pumps to for self-leveling and for variable ride height um, it it just seems like such an elegant solution. I've actually not been in a DS with the hydropneumatic suspension, but what what does it feel like? I mean, is does it ride like nothing else on the road, or is it actually just you know quite a good ride? No, no, no. Um, it well, it rides differently to anything else on the road. Um, it does feel well because you are like you're riding on a pillow of gas, which is effectively what you're doing. Um, and yeah, it does feel, you know, um, and, and there are some disadvantages. You don't get the same sort of feel that you get with, you know, with conventional coil springs and shock absorbers, but you know, it's something like a DS estate, who cares? You know, it's not what you want. You just want to glide around the place and good. I mean, that's what they do. They glide, they glide like, you know, like S-Class Mercedes don't glide. I mean, they're, they're, they are, they are absolutely amazing. I think my guess for the reason that they, if I could guess at a reason why they weren't universally adopted, is they're complicated. Um, and I think they require a bit of maintenance. Um, I mean, I know this because uh, a mate of mine, Richard Bremner, used to have a DS. Um, and he had it for, I'm not joking, I think more than a decade. And I think he probably did fewer than 10 miles in it in that time. Um because it was all, it was just always being fixed. There was just always stuff going wrong with it, um, and I suspect I suspect that was the issue. Whereas if you've got a normal damper and a coil spring, I mean, there's not an awful lot to go wrong there. It's very very, and, and it's like all these things, isn't there? So many technologies which don't get adopted, and we've talked about this sort of thing on the on the podcast before. Technologies which. It's not that the technologies themselves are imperfect. It is that you cannot get them to the market at a price the market is prepared to pay, or you can't um, maintain them for the money that the market is prepared to pay. So, the, so the great technology sort of withers on the vine, um, and the inferior technology, because it is cheap and easy, prevails. And you know, I suspect that's what um, what ultimately the problem was with it. Mm. Um, so it's, it's not just that the French car industry has built weird cars, quirky cars with unusual engineering. Um, it has, at, 
many, many points over the years, built some of the best affordable performance cars going. Do you think any country on earth has a, a stronger case for being the land of the no. hot hatch? No, no, and not even Germany, and they've got the golf. No, I don't. I absolutely don't. Um, I mean, who, who could be the contenders? Britain, don't be silly. Germany, yeah, they did a few. Um, Italy, yeah, they did a few. Nah, Japan, France, isn't it? A couple. J- J- Japan, they did. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Hondas and Toyotas and you know, Fair Play to it. But no, if you think of, I mean, for goodness sake, um, you know, they, they, they pretty much invented the hot hatch. I know everybody thinks it's the Golf, but it isn't. There was, what was there before the Golf? Uh, was there a Simca or something like that? But, you know, if you think about those, the, the really early Renault 5 Gordini, which I think predated the Golf, um, you may not even remember this. Um, but they had amazing wheels, um, almost completely sort of flush, flat wheels with only three um, bolts in them. And that, that sort of started it. And then you think of what they did with the Renault 5 uh, all the way through to the GT Turbo and then into the Clears. And then you think what, you know, what Citroen was doing um, with the AXGT and the VZGTI. And then, of course, Peugeot, um, you know, needless to say. Um, no, no one gets closer, gets close to the French when it comes to those. I mean, and in many ways, they are some of the most important cars, aren't they? Because they were so accessible. These are the sorts of cars that even, you know, young idiots like us could think about going out and, and, and buying and enjoying. Um, so they were great um, democratizers too. Absolutely, yeah. That's a really good point. The, the car that I... Uh, sort of uh, longed to own more than any when I was 17 was a Saxo VTR or a VTS. <laughs> the now, what's the, okay, 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 product knowledge, please. What's the difference between a VTR and a VTS? I think it's I'll 8 and that. 16 valves. Uh, I'm, not okay, sure. I'm, I'm not sure which one's which. I don't okay. Know. I have, I'm afraid I, if, if I ever knew, it's, what, the, the, the information has long since fled my brain. Yeah. But, I'd, oh God, it brings it all back just hearing VTR and VTS, just how aspirational they seem to me as a as a kid yeah. just starting out learning to drive. Um, well, I mean, if, you, if you or me, and where I was so lucky is... Okay, this is interesting, um, I hope. Um, quite often, you don't realise you've got it as good as you do. Um, and, and, and it requires things to be really pretty amazing for you to be aware right there and right then that this is not usual. Um, you know, and I can remember when I first started uh, out in motoring journalism thinking, yeah, this is a golden age for the hot hatchback. Absolutely. This this was at, because, you know, they were all um, there, you know, everything, you know, from the Integrale, you know, down through the, you know, the 205s and the, and the really good golfs they were making at the time. Um, and, you know, and, and, and every time a new one came out. Um, we just kind of like fall on it because, you know, uh, we, we just knew there was going to be another, you know, cracking experience to be had. And in fact, what I would say, and this is getting slightly off subject because this isn't particularly about French cars, but I actually think in hot hatchback terms, um, we're going through another one at the moment. I think there are some amazing, um, you know, um, quick hatchbacks around now. I think a greater depth of talent, uh, in that field at the moment than there has been at any time, I would say, since that sort of purple period I'm talking about in the sort of late 80s and early 90s. Um, so, yeah, but, but you know, absolutely front and centre were the French cars, weren't they? Um, yeah. Yeah, and there have just been so many of them, um, particularly uh, Renault and Peugeot. You, this is a, a good time to be recording this podcast because 
last week, last week as this goes out, you wrote a piece on Drive Nation, at Drive Nation underscore on Instagram, everyone, if you don't know about it already. Um, you wrote a piece about the Renault 5 GT Turbo. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange one, the 5 GT Turbo, because I had one. Uh, I had a 205 GTI. Uh, this is when I was a young idiot and was earning a bit of money in the city before I saw sense and decided to go and do what I enjoyed for a living. Um, and so I had a 205 GTI, uh, and then a little bit after that, uh, in fact, it was the last car I owned before I became a motoring journalist, I had a Renault 5 GT Turbo. And while the 205 stayed front and centre in my brain, to the extent that I went, you know, whatever it was, 30 years later or 25 years later, I went and bought another one um, and loved it as much today as I had done all those years ago, the 5 Turbo just kind of slipped my mind. And the strange thing was, when I had it at the time, I can remember thinking, you know, how much quicker it was than the Peugeot, how much better it handled than the Peugeot, or handled the house, certainly how much grippier it was. I think I probably preferred it as a thing to drive um, to the Peugeot. Uh, what I didn't like about it was even, you know, I was pretty um, robust about, you know, things back then, but even I was scared about how badly built it was because, you know, there was no point driving it anything other than as fast as you could possibly make it go. And the idea of having an accident in one was fairly terrifying. Um, and it, it annoyed me because things just broke off it all the time and then it locked me out. Um, and I, and I, I, I just got cheesed off with it in the end, but, um, I did that thing on, uh, on DN last week. And as a result, um, one of the very, very nice chaps from Renault um, got in touch with me, and they've got one on their fleet. On the, lots of manufacturers have these sort of historic fleets. Um, and what they have said is that if I can think of something sensible to write about it, that they'll let me muck about in it for another, for, for another two or three days. So I will find something to write about it. Um, and I'm going to be reunited because I haven't driven one since 1987. Um <laughs> So be it'll, be, it'll, it'll be memory lane for me. And, I, and, you know, and, and it may be, it's strange the way that some cars endure, some cars are as good when you get back in them and you just think, wow, this is what I remember now why I love this car. And a 205 GTI is absolutely that. They are, if you get a good one, um, they are just extraordinary because they feel as good today as they did 30 something years ago. But lots and lots of cars don't. Uh, and one of them actually is a Renault 5. You remember the, the mid-engine Renault 5, the, the, the yeah. Renault 5 Turbo. Turbo, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I drove one of those, I mean, you know, a while back, but, you know, certainly within the last 10 years. And I just, I couldn't see the point. I just didn't understand why everybody's raving about it. I thought it was a nail. I really did. It didn't feel, it didn't feel very quick. Uh, it, it wanted to kill me. Um, uh, the engine was horrible. Uh, you know, it looked amazing, but I mean, it was just one of those cars which hadn't survived the test of time at all. So I, I'm fascinated to drive this 5 GT Turbo because I don't know whether I'm going to get back into it and that smile's going to come back on my face and I'm going to be, you know, screaming around the place hooting like an idiot or whether I'm going to be sitting there thinking, what on earth did I see in this car? I don't know. It'll be difficult to be sort of really objective about that, won't it? Because you'll jump in it and be reminded of being 22 years old again or whatever it was. Yeah. And you will have a hoot, I'm, I'm sure of it. Don't know. I don't know. I, you know, I'm not sure. I, I, I will reserve. I hope so. I really, really hope so. And I'll let you know. But um, I, I, I will reserve judgment. I mean, some, sometimes, you know, okay, Mark 1 Golf GTI. Do you remember how much we, well, you're too bloody young, aren't you? But, you know, we all thought they were fantastic. And I had one of those uh, as well. And I thought it was absolutely lovely, amazing, wonderful. And then I did something 
uh, when, what would it have been? Probably in 2018, which I think, or whenever, whenever the like the 40th anniversary of the introduction of the Golf GTI to the UK. Well, and I went and drove them all, and I drove Volkswagen a Mark One Golf GTI, and I can remember driving this and thinking, I do not understand what I saw in this car. It was just, I mean, it was nice, it was all right, but there was no magic. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, that was quite surprising. Yeah, so I don't know which way it's going to go with the, mm. with, with, with the five GT Turbo. Um, but um, hopefully I'll think of something to write about it and then, then I'll, um, I'll have a go. And we'll see. Um, okay, so we've spoken quite a lot, haven't we, about the 205 GTI um, on this podcast already. Uh, we've also spoken about the Clio V6 a fair amount. Um, but we need to pick out some of the others. And I, I hope that um, you'll suggest one or two to talk about because my first-hand knowledge of French hot hatches doesn't reach back any further than sort of 2008 when I started in this line of work. Um, but what are the what are the sort of highlights for you other than the ones that we've spoken about before? Are there some more obscure ones? Yeah, there are a couple of obscure ones uh, which I quite liked. Okay, so there. Are, I mean, hmm, things. Okay, Peugeot 306 GTI six. Mm. Yeah. Six-speed gearbox in a uh, in a three hundred six cracking. I mean, I mean a better car than a two hundred five. I mean a later car than a two hundred five, but much more usable. Um, but really, really peppy and fun and well balanced. Um, you know, lovely, lovely car. Mi sixteen four hundred five. Mi sixteen. Goodness, we we used to love those. We used to absolutely. Um, and every time anybody else came out with a quick. Um, you know, sort of family saloon. We'd always stick it up against an MI16, and I can't remember the MI16 ever losing to anything. It was just, <laughs> it was the, I think it's the only front wheel drive car I've ever driven which would power on oversteer. I don't know why it would do it, but it had. <laughs> it doesn't sound it, right. If <laughs> it, 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 what, what you needed was to be powering out of an off camber corner, and the back would just go, and so you'd just find yourself, you know, foot down, power sliding a front wheel drive car, which just sounds completely wrong. Um, but, well, I was about to say they did do it. Certainly the one that I drove did. Um, so that was great. Um, the, 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 the Citroen Visa GTI. Now see if you can find what I have a real soft spot for. So basically this was, um, a Citroen Visa with, with Peugeot 205 GTI running gear. So it had that lovely, uh, aluminium 1.6 litre TU engine in it. Um, and it was even lighter, I think. I'm not sure it was even lighter than, um, than the Peugeot, uh, but the the last time I looked on what's it called that site called Hamleyleft.co.uk, I don't think that I don't think there were any on the road, or like three or four. But I mean, if I ever saw one in anything like reasonable condition come up for sale at anything like affordable money, I don't think I could refuse it. I I would just I just love turning up places and people just looking at me. <laughs> think, what is what that? is that? <laughs> what is that? And uh, and you say, well, it's a it's it's a, it's a two hundred five GTI done the Citroen way um, and they were fun um, AXGT as well um, I mean another really scary car I mean just just made out of you know crisp packets I mean just so flimsy but such good fun as a kid um, I've, I've never driven one but as a kid I always loved the 106 rallies I've, I came reasonably close to buying one um, many years yeah. ago were they good 106 rallies were good yeah I mean I'm always a bit I'm always a bit. I'm sure you know, some people don't, know what I'm don't about burst to say, the bubble. No, no, no. They, they, they were good. The problem was they weren't as good as a 205 rally. Oh. 
Mm. Um, I mean, a two or five rally with that carb, you know, that with that was it, that um, one point three liter um, engine with a couple of twin forty Webers stuck on the side of it, um, weighing seven hundred and ninety kilos. Um, you pay proper money for those things now, uh, if you can find a nice one, which you probably can't because they've all been rallied, which means they've and they haven't been rallied, they've been crashed. So, that you're finding really good clean straight ones now are, are is is hard. Um, funny enough, you and I both know someone who's got one, but um, yeah, um, yeah, two or five rally. I mean, pro- probably actually more fun to drive than a GTI, but um, you know, super short short gearing, so you couldn't really go anywhere in it because it would just drive you out the wall. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you, decent... ch- you change gear and the engine though doesn't change. Well, exactly. You, 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 you just see the sort of the rev counter sort of flick a tiny bit um, before the same manic progress is, uh, is, is, is continues. But um, yeah, no, just oh, I could spend hours talking about these sorts of things. It's just lovely. It's a pure memory lane stuff for me. Um, but but but, the, but these cars were. I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel so lucky that you know that you and I um, you know grew up in that era because you know if you think about. I mean, I suppose if you grew up in the 60s and the 70s, there were sort of Mini Coopers and that sort of thing around. But I think they were they were probably quite expensive cars, weren't they? I'm not sure. Um, there certainly wasn't the range and breadth of, um, of you know, fun, affordable cars to go out and hoon around in then that there are now. And for that, we, we, we have the French to thank for that um, in, in, in very, very large part. So it was what 15 no 12 years ago or something that i started in this line of work and that's when uh the megan renault sport megan r26 was knocking about not the r we'll come to that but the r26 um i think the first time renault sport put a diff in that megan um was the f1 team thing or maybe that was the r26 maybe it's the same one um but anyway I, i remember reading about these cars before i started at performance car at the end of 2007. So I'd, I'd be reading Autocar and Evo, um, and the Renaissance McGann was never quite there as a class leader until they put the diff in it. And I just remember that changed everything um, and turned it into a real contender. Um, what was it up against? What, what was the hot competition well, at the time? Uh, so when was the Focus RS? That was, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe that was a few years before. Um, what else might there have oh, been? Oh, the original Focus RS. No, that was, yeah, that, was yeah. that was that was that was a bit before then, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, I think the, it was, the Civic, presumably, probably um, the Civic, yeah, which had the lovely engine, but they but they hadn't put the decent suspe- they'd taken the decent suspension off it, hadn't they? So that and maybe was... a say, say at Leon Cupra. Yeah. The, yeah. the handsome one. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so I, I remember talking to um, one of the engineers at Renault Sport. Um, JP, his name is. He now works at. A sister company to Renault Sport. Uh, what what, what uh, would that be? Don't know. Can't remember the name. Can't remember the name. And he <laughs> he was explaining D- 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 Dieppe base, perhaps. Oh, that's right, Dieppe base. Yeah, yeah. Factory <laughs> in Dieppe. On. And they were. <laughs> and he, I, I was asking him about how the R twenty six R came to be, and you'll remember that uh, it's the it's the the limited edition model. Oh, yeah, absolutely, um, the two seater. The two seater, no rear seats, with bucket seats up front and a cage in the back, and track day tyres and perspex windows, and that titanium exhaust. Um, it's just a fantastic thing. And I remember talking to him about how that came to be, and it was effectively, it was him and just um, a couple of others, a really small team who presented the idea to um, to the board, 
and they somehow managed to get the green light to build this completely absurd um it's i mean it's not really a hot hatch anymore is it if it has no seats it's a two-seat sports car based on a on a hatchback um and of course it came out around 08 wasn't it around the financial crash and so no bugger bought one um and yeah, but it was also... I don't think they'd have bought them anyway because it was so expensive. You, it, was expensive. it was kind of like Porsche Cayman money, wasn't it? It was a lot of money. Um, yeah. But they were brilliant fun to drive, weren't they? Oh, they were. Yeah, they were. And, and was, that, was that the first um, car to... First front-wheel drive sort of hatchback car to set a meaningful Nürburgring time? Was that, was that the first under eight minutes or something? I'm trying to remember now. I don't think it quite went under eight, but it went fast. It went much faster than a lot of really serious kit, didn't it? Um, and I just remember, I love that sensation in that R26R of being strapped, harnessed into those bucket seats, um, leaning on all that grip, feeling that lovely fluid pliant suspension because it was lighter than the standard R26. They actually took spring rate out, didn't they? So it had a lovely supple chassis um, and just flinging it down roads feeling that massive grip from those track day tyres, as long as the road was dry. And honestly, just feeling like a rally driver, a tarmac rally driver. It was fantastic. And maybe the fact that they struggled to sell them doesn't actually matter so much because the volumes were, I don't know how many they made, maybe sort of 500 or something, didn't they? I can't remember. But uh, the volumes certainly weren't high. And the fact is, 12 years later, you know, you and I are still talking about them. There are a few thousand people listening to us talking about them. Multiplied that by every other car enthusiast who, you know, who, who's ever sort of wistfully remembered them. And you know, they have a they have a life beyond their sort of production period, don't they? Um, and these are the sorts of cars that do go on to be idolised and, and 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 recalled with affection. And you know, and that's all that does the all, does the company good, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And they at Renault Sport, they went to such lengths to build this R26R and to build it and to make it the car they wanted it to be. Um, for instance, it was a complete nightmare getting harnesses homologated for road use. Um, you know, if you're just some tuner working out of a garage somewhere, you can put a harness in a car. But if you're Renault, the hoops you have to jump through just to make that change are enormous. And I think it's... Um, JP, this guy, JP Dose, um, and he was explaining, he led the project and he was explaining to me that to get approval to use this harness, they had to demonstrate that it could be latched and unlatched 10,000 times without wearing out. And how do you do that? You know, when presented with that, that problem, how many other car manufacturers would just go, oh, we'll just use a normal lap belt? So but, what do they do? Do they build a rig which would do it automatically, or do they have some no. Paul Salt sitting in the car? No, they, three... they, everyone had to take a turn. Oh, my goodness. So I think they'd come in in the morning, and it would be someone's turn to do 200 latching and unlatchings or something, and eventually they got to 10,000. Wow. I'd never heard that story. That is extraordinary. It's great, isn't it? You should yeah. have done, because I wrote about it on DN. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Brain fade. Uh, so, uh, changing the subject somewhat hastily, uh, what did you think of the one they did, uh, when was it, last year or the year before then, uh, the, the, the most recent two-seat McGann? Um, you know, I've, not, uh, I've oh, not driven one. You've not driven one? No. Okay. No. I didn't think it was that great. Yeah, explain why. And hang on, did you drive the, the one that cost £7 million? Or? Yes, I did. 
Yeah, no, I think I'd, I think I'd rather one in full Nurburgring specification because it, I'll tell you why I didn't like it. Well, it's not that I didn't like it. I didn't. It was. It, I'll tell you why I was disappointed by it because it was too uh, concerned with the business of going fast rather than the business of providing fun, and I think that is a crucial distinction. Um, and I think it's an easy mistake to make. And the problem was. When you're charging, because with all the kit on it, this was, and I'm not joking, this was a £70,000 Renault Megane. Um, and you think what you can get for that kind of money. I mean, we are knocking on the door of Cayman GT4 territory. And, and you just think to yourself, oh, well, for goodness sake, you know. Uh, I do kind of admire them for doing it. And it did have, I think it had titanium sprays, all sorts of crazy stuff on it. But actually, it was just really good. When you, what you were expecting, given the specification, given the money, was something which was going to absolutely blow your socks off, um, and and it didn't. I'm afraid. Um, I, th- I think really what they finally buttoned up against was just the limitation of what you can do um, with a car with you know with a fundamental imbalance as all front engine, front wheel drive cars are, um, and with you know driven wheels at the wrong end of the car um and you know and, and i still admire them really for doing it and you know it goes back to what i was saying at the beginning about um them just having the guts to have a go and do that but do you know what in terms of pure fun i was thinking the other day about all those amazing um clears you know the 182s and the 197s and, and, and all that lot before they put the flappy paddles on them um and you know the trophies um and just how much, and the you know the Clear Williams as well. I mean, all those. Um, and do you know? Just as a thing to get in and hoon about and have fun, and I, I'd, I'd drive any of them over over that seventy grand um, Megane, which probably isn't going to win me many friends. But but I mean it. I, I absolutely feel it. To me, I'm 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 not. I you know I might be you know academically impressed by how fast a car can get around a track or whatever. But you know when I get into it to drive it, it doesn't. I'm not concerned at all. I just want to have fun. Um, and a, you know, a clear one eight two, something like that is just, I just, I sitting here just smiling, thinking about the <laughs> fun I've had in those cars, um, over the years and, you know, and, 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 and the original clear Williams, I drove a Williams, um, not that long ago. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a good, nice long run across a proper sort of Welsh mountain road in it. Um, and I can remember just thinking, okay, it's very clunky in certain ways, but just in the terms of. You know, the balance between the available power and the grip of the chassis and the sweetness of the engine and the balance of, you know, just the way that it behaved in court. I can remember just thinking, you know, you could spend an awful lot of money not doing, you know, it anything like as well as this now. Um, yeah, just fabulous things. And what I really admire about Renault is, like the R26R, um, setting the barrier really high and still finding a way over it. Things like... Putting those Saks dampers on the, the Clear 182 Trophy, um, I mean, it's just the sort of thing that, well, we don't really see much of it now, do we? But how, how do you get that past uh, a sort of conservative and cautious um, board when well, don't. there's no money to be made? But, 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 but the, I don't know whether they were, I don't know whether they were just, had, they were just really persuasive. Um, or maybe they were just given a budget and they just thought to themselves, well, if we don't, if we don't spend this on that, we don't spend that on that other thing over there. We can just create a kitty and then we'll just do the dampers and we won't tell anyone. It'll just say, look, here, here, here it is. It's got some shock absorbers on it and you, you and I will know what they are. 
um, and you know, and, and how special they are. Uh, that, that, that's what I like to think. I like to think the board just doesn't think down to down to that sort of level. But you know, again, it was you know, it, it, it was a very very smart thing to do because those really did make a difference. Um, goodness me, those cars! I mean, the way they rode, the way that the car's ability to maintain its uh, its ride height over really tricky um, terrain, which meant you could just commit. Uh, knowing it wasn't going to wallow or heave or roll around all over the place. Um, and again, you know, it's just another one of those things that all these years later we remember and we recall and we feel good about. Um, and yeah, so it was whatever it cost in those terms alone, it was clearly worth it. I uh, do remember a couple of years ago, Renault Sport toyed with, uh, oh, and they actually built a couple of prototypes, didn't they? They toyed with putting the Megan 275 powertrain into a Clio. Do you, do you remember that? I can't remember what they were going to call it. Oh, so, uh, I, yeah, did they ever let anybody drive it? Yeah, I drove it. Oh, did you? Go on. Mm. I mean, it was really good. It was really good. But the trouble is, it was never... I don't know. I mean, how how much better is a Clio going to be just because it's got a, a shed load more power? Um, I mean, it was a, a thorough re-engineering exercise to get that two-litre engine into the front of the Clio and make it work. And they, they gave it wider tracks, and it looked really muscular, didn't it? It had a wing on the back. And it was. It was really good to drive. I only drove it on circuit. But it just it had such ability. You know, it was flat in corners. It felt really grippy and balanced. Um, it had really good power. But ultimately, I think it, it would have been built in tiny numbers. They probably would have had to charge a lot for it just to make sense of the whole program. Um, and it's perhaps not surprising that... It, it didn't go any further than that. But ultimately, just putting the the two-litre engine from a Megan, a front-engine Megan, into the front of a Clio, front-engine, front-wheel drive, both of them, it's nothing like as ambitious as putting a V6 engine in the middle of a Clio, is it? Oh. <laughs> you see, that was a and rubbish car. we've mentioned car. it again. <laughs> that was such a rubbish car, but good. I love it. I just... Uh, it, it was ambitious, and and well, you've written about you know about Maverick cars and and how difficult it is to do them these days, and that that was a true Mavericks car. And I think for that alone, it's you know it, it, it's placed in history as a short, isn't it? It really is. It really is. Do you think is there anything? Often when we do these sort of podcasts dedicated to certain topics, someone will come back to us and say, "How could you talk about X type of car and not mention Y?" Is, is there? Have we left anything? Uh, oh, I, th- I, I, th- I think there are all sorts of um, cars we haven't mentioned. I mean, Justin Citroen's, we haven't mentioned the CX, which was a great car. The GS, fabulous. We haven't mentioned the Ami. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> we haven't mentioned the Ami. I, I have a thing. If you don't know, well, sure, you do, what an Ami is, go and look at an Ami 6 saloon and have a look at the rear windscreen of an Ami 6 saloon. If you, oh, this may sound like a strange thing to say, but if you look at the rear windscreen of an Ami 6 saloon, you will understand why I want an Ami 6 saloon. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it is, it's just pure, brilliant French madness. Um, yeah, all sorts of things. Um, all the Gordinis. I mean, for goodness sake, we haven't mentioned, um, because, well, well, I'm allowed to, we haven't mentioned Alpines. We haven't, men- we haven't mentioned the original A110. I mean, one of the most, to me, one of the most beautiful cars uh, ever built and a very, very successful competition car. Um, we've barely dwelt on the cars that followed it, the 310, the GTA. Oh, I mean, you know, that was a cracking car. Um, 
you know, a GTA Turbo um, looked amazing, handled brilliantly, quick car, um, light, uh, you know, on paper and actually on the road, um, you know, a pretty convincing rival for a 911, but, you know, they never sold. Uh, we've barely touched on the A6, all sorts of things. And, you know, and people will be reminding us from here to eternity of all the um of, of, of all the other cars that um that we haven't mentioned yet but maybe i mean there's certainly enough to do in, in another podcast so let's do a list of all the ones that we haven't mentioned and, and pretend we met we, we we intended it to be that way because we're just saving up for the next, for the next <laughs> podcast very good okay all right well let's wind that one up now i just have to remind you all to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get them uh, leave us a review and a rating, but a glowing review. Um, also, if you want to bung us a few quid a month, you can. It's patreon.com forward slash drive nation. Um, and for everyone who does contribute a bit there, we, we write exclusive sort of full length articles. Um, and yeah, we will be back to talk to you again next week. Yeah, just before we go, Dan, what would you say, because this is one, the one thing that, that, that we haven't addressed on this, what would you say is the best French car made today? Mm, uh, Alpine A110. Bye, everyone. <laughs>